Hey, this morning we are continuing in our uh, 10-week sermon series called You Can Have It All. And of course, we defined all as being participants in the divine life of God. And what better all can you have, right? Being a participant in the divine life of God. And over the last three weeks, we have jackhammered down into the foundation of the Christian life and we're kind of examining the core building blocks that make up a firm foundation as a follower of Jesus in this new kind of life. And what we found uh, three weeks ago was that first of all, there is faith. Peter says, add to your faith. Make every effort to add to your faith. And this is not just a distant mental awareness of, yes, God is out there. I, I believe there is a God. This is an intimate, personal, unrestrained entrusting of ourselves to the person of Jesus in a, a vital and, and real relationship with the creator, the sustainer, the savior of all things. It's kind of like the difference between seeing a picture of an In-N-Out order of fries, right? On the order board at an In-N-Out restaurant. So you see them up there, you go, wow, those are fries. In fact, those are some of the best fries in the world. And if you're visiting out of state, go to In-N-Out, right? So that's one thing. That's knowing about God. Here's the, the real thing, is actually ordering up a basket of them and tasting them, and especially if they're animal fries, right, with fried onions, cheddar cheese, and that special Thousand Island sauce piled on top, right? Now, that should get the juices going this morning, right? That's the difference. Seeing it on the board and tasting it right in front of you. That is the faith that, that Peter and God want us to have. So we discovered that three weeks ago. We also discovered in our excavation of Second Peter this quality of goodness, and I, I love this, this quality because it's not just a generic thing that's good. The Greek tells us it's an excellence of living out our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, that we have understood, oh, that's what he wants me to do, to be a, a disciple, a learner, to share the gospel, to go to whole, the whole world and, and preach the gospel, to live out the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it's an essential quality for having all of the life that God offers, right? It's this pursuit of excellence as a follower of Jesus. So we add that to our faith. Last week, Pastor Bill unearthed for us this third quality, the quality of knowledge. This builds on the faith. Knowledge is described in the Greek language in a couple of ways. One is I... I know because I've seen it, and the other is I know because I've experienced it, and that latter is what is going on here. This is personal, in-depth, an experience of Jesus Christ, knowing him as he truly is, the, the son of God, God in the flesh, having that real relationship with him. Uh, BibleRef.com actually does a pretty good job of looking at this passage and up, summarizing up what we've just been talking about. So here's what they say. Taken together, this list of qualities describes the life of a Christian who is participating in God's nature, right? So that's the goal. That's the all. As shown in this list, there is a logical order to these characteristics, and we're going to show you this every single week. He builds on our faith, and we have to keep adding to that. So there's a logical order. Each one is a necessary requirement for the quality which follows. So if we are not having faith, if we are not pursuing in excellence the life of God, if we are not getting to know Jesus Christ, we can't add the next one or the one after that or the one after that. We have to begin and build as we go, much like we would build a home. 
They write, for since, or first, since we have been equipped to live like Jesus in faith, we must then work to add goodness or moral excellence to our faith. This means that we will work to do good by God's power in the world now as Jesus would in our place, living the life of Christ. This goodness becomes the foundation for the rest of these qualities. And they add uh, this final statement. We are also to add knowledge. This was Bill last week. This is a deeper understanding of our God through his word and prayer and so forth, which informs our goodness so that merely wanting to do good is not enough. We must know what good is by knowing God. Isn't that beautiful? The more we get to know Jesus, the more we get to realize that's what goodness is. I can live that out in my life based on faith. So these first three qualities, this is really important. Don't miss this. These first three qualities describe our connection to Jesus. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Okay, good. I thought I'd lost you for a second. They describe our connection to Jesus, our faith, the Christian life, the person of Jesus himself. This next quality we're looking at this morning examines our connection to the world. So if we're not settled in our connection to Christ, we're going to have a really hard time connecting to the world. The first three are about spiritual intimacy with Jesus. This next quality is about spiritual resiliency in the world. How do we live in the world and live well as a follower of Christ? So this third quality that we're adding to our faith uh, is designed to bring the full life of God active within us into the world, and that quality is self-control. Would you say that with me? Self-control. Now, that's a very easy thing to say, isn't it? Of course, self-control. I love that the way David Mathis, who is the executive editor of DesiringGod.org, he's pastor at Cities Church, describes this quality in one of his blogs. It's up on the screen for you. I want to read it for you. Listen to this. It sounds so simple, he says, and straightforward, perhaps even commonplace. It's not a flashy concept or an especially attractive idea. It, it doesn't turn heads or grab headlines. It can be as seemingly small as saying no to another Oreo. French fry. Now, you never say no to In-N-Out French fries, okay? But to a regular French fry, yes, you would say no. Or a milkshake. Or another half hour on Netflix or Facebook. Or it can feel as significant as living out a resounding yes to sobriety and sexual purity. This week on Facebook, one of my friends wrote, I haven't had alcohol for a month. It's worth it. So he's experiencing self-control. He's applying it here in a significant way. They go on to say, and listen to this, it is at the height of Christian virtue in a fallen world. This is why it's third. After, fourth, actually, after faith and goodness and knowledge. He says, it is at the height of Christian virtue in a fallen world, and its exercise is quite simply one of the most difficult things you will ever learn to do. Would you agree with that? I would. This is not an easy thing. He says, self-control, our hyphenated English, is frank and functional. There is no cloak of imagery or euphemistic pretense, no punches pulled, no poetic twist, no endearing irony. And here's the kicker for him. He says, self-control is simply that important, impressive, and nearly impossible practice of learning to maintain control of the beast of one's own sinful passions. Well, that's a mouthful. It's simply that important, 
impressive and nearly impossible practice of learning to control the beast of one's own sinful passions. He says it means remaining master of your own domain, not only in the hunky-dory, but also when faced with trial or temptation. Self-control may be the epitome of easier said than done. <laughs> He's so right. In fact, take a look at this video of an attempt to be self-controlled. Sit right here. Hey, Ryler. What? Okay, I got a treat. Tea? I do. So, I'm going to get a treat. Tea. Sit right there, okay? Okay. What's that? This is chocolate chips. Now, what? can you, um, can you wait to eat them until I get back? Yeah. Can you wait? Yeah. Okay, don't eat them until I get back. Okay. Be right back. Watch the timer. Cow? Swan? I said, yeah, just wait until I get back, okay? Oh, no, no, no. You can have some. Okay, I love that. The chocolate chips. Chocolate chips. <laughs> 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 oh man, Ryan, this little three-year-old did an incredible job of being self-controlled for the most part, right? I mean, granted, he kissed one of the uh, chocolate chips and kind of rearranged them at the top of the glass. But here's this over two-minute time frame, and at one point he says, "Daddy, look." look, I haven't really eaten any at one point. And so he takes all of these efforts to be self-controlled for at least two minutes. The biblical term for self-control in kratos literally means this, to get a grip on oneself. Isn't that beautiful? To get a grip on oneself, to restrain one's passions and appetites, to control one's desires and one's actions. So that is a pretty clear definition, isn't it? But it's an important definition. So why? why? Why is this such an important quality for the Christians? Why does it show up in this list of elite eight? 
qualities that God is saying. You've got to work hard to add these to your faith. Well, I think it's because once we have that personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ in faith, and we decide to live out our lives as sold-out disciples of Jesus Christ for the kingdom of God, uh, being excellent in our faith, and we increase our understanding of who Jesus is, and we are living in relationship to him, we still have to live in this messed-up, broken world. We still have to do that. So the importance for self-control is discovered when we examine our surroundings and what is in them for good or ill. Now think about that for a second as we get ready to look at this passage and a couple of others. The importance of self-control is discovered when we examine our surroundings and what is in them for good or ill. So I want you to imagine in your mind this morning that you find yourself stuck in a trackless, broiling, hot desert. You're dying of thirst, your lips are cracked, your tongue is swollen, your vision is beginning to blur, and you're on the edge of giving up, and suddenly you look up, and through the radiating heat of the desert floor, you see not too far off palm trees. And you think to yourself, I'm saved, and you get there, and there's this gurgling, laughing brook of water coming into an oasis, and you think to yourself, I'm saved, and what do you do? That's not a rhetorical question. You drink, right? You go over and you drink. You're saved. Now, I want you to think for a second. It would be foolish, in fact, life-threatening, to resist that urge to drink at that moment. It would be pure stupidity to control yourself and stand at a distance, right? Now, think about it this way again. You, again, find yourself stuck in a trackless, broiling, hot desert. All right, same scenario. You're dying of thirst. Your, your lips are cracked. Your tongue is swollen. Um, your vision is blurring, and, and you think, I'm on the edge of giving up, and then suddenly above that radiating heat of the desert floor, you looked in the distance, not too far off, palm trees. And uh, it's, it's this oasis with this gurgling, laughing brook of water coming down. You think to yourself, I'm saved! And you run over, only to find on the sand surrounding the brook and the oasis dozens of bloated carcasses and sun-bleached bones of animals who died from drinking the water. What do you do? You don't drink. You exercise self-control. It would be foolish, life-threatening, for you to not resist the urge to drink, right? It would be pure stupidity to not control yourself. And so we find the importance of self-control magnified when we examine our surroundings and what is good or ill about them. Now, Peter... I love what Peter's doing in his epistles. And ladies, I'm so excited that you're in the epistles of Peter. In fact, this passage that's going to be on the screen is one of your passages from this week's study. So take a look at it. Peter describes the surroundings around us, and he talks about self-control. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 7. Notice it on the screen. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he was the ultimate individual who exercised self-control, could have delivered himself with 10,000 angels, didn't. Since he did, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whosoever has suffered in the flesh, notice this, has ceased from sin. There's a correlation between suffering, self-control, and less sin. Verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past, your history, your past life, what you've done over the course of your life suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. 
All of us lived in this at one point in our lives. The scripture is clear. We were all people who lived in the world by our passions. And it goes on to describe them. Living in sensuality. This is living solely to please my senses. We used to do that. The world still does that. Passions. Strongly unruly emotions. Drunkenness. Alcohol binging. Orgies. Sexual parties. Drinking parties. Brewskis with the buds. Lawless idolatry, ignoring what is right and living for what we want. He says the world is like that. That's what the world is like. There are sun-bleached bones out there by the water. He goes on to say, with respect to this, they are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. We've all had that happen in different ways, large and small. Verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Those of us who are dead in our sins, the gospel was preached to us to bring us to life so that we might not be judged by God. And he says, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Notice what he says. What's that next phrase? Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So the people to whom Peter is writing this, this uh, letter, this epistle, were embedded, these Christians were embedded in a culture of sexual promiscuity. We have that today. Unrestrained emotions. We have that today. Acts of lawlessness. Oh, do we have that today? Sensual idolatry. Yes, that's present today. And people feeding the beasts within. Yes, we have that as well today. So self-control men and women of Trinity, is valuable for us today for at least, at least three reasons. Let me give them to you. Number one, self-control prevents us from taking paths in life which would ultimately ruin us. It keeps us from those paths. Notice Proverbs 25, 28. This is a great passage. He that has no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. If you don't have self-control, he's saying anything and anyone can walk right into your life and take control. It's like living in a home with no front door in a crime-ridden, blighted part of town. Can you imagine that? You have no front door. And he says, if this is true of your life, if there's no self-control, that... that thing that stands in the way of the world, he says um, that your heart and your mind, our spirits are an open invitation to every lousy ideology, to every filthy, demonic desire out there. Every arousing worldly practice you can imagine, we have an open front door because there's no self-control. But he says with self-control, that door to such invaders is shut tight. Our hearts are safe. Our treasured values and beliefs and desires are well protected. So self-control prevents us from taking a path in life which could ultimately ruin us. It, it creates that barrier to all of the things in the world that would take our lives and ruin them. Number two, self-control enables us to make our lives count for something long-lasting, even eternal. And don't you want that? Don't you want your life to count for something greater than just this life. I do. 
I want to leave a legacy. I want to arrive in heaven to the phrase, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And I want that inheritance that God promises me. We should want that. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 says, do you not know, this is a very familiar passage, right? That uh, in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. This always just amazed me. They, they go to 10 months of training. You had to actually sign up for 10 months of what they called agonazo. Does that sound like a word we know? Agony. You had to sign up for that, 10 months of it, before you could run in the race. And what you get at the end is a, is a vine around your head. But that was a mark of honor, of greatness. So he goes on to say, they, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly, he says. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul, excuse me, Peter here recognizes, this is Paul, 1 Corinthians. Paul recognizes that self-control in a sports setting does have temporary benefits. Next week, some guys are going to walk away with Super Bowl rings, right? They're temporary. They're easily lost. But self-control, he clearly states, has this imperishable benefit. 1 Peter 1.4, ladies, again, you're going to be in this passage says, you will receive an inheritance, listen to this, that is incorruptible, meaning nothing can decay it, doesn't rust, doesn't fade, it's undefiled, it's pure, not fading away, but reserved in heaven for you. As a follower of Jesus Christ, how you live your life here and now determines the rewards and the imperishable things that God gives you there. The crowns of righteousness, of soul winning, of faithfulness. So it takes focus. You know, when an athlete works on running, he works on different things. He works on his stride, his finish, his endurance, his start. It takes focus on specific parts of our lives. And it takes discipline. That thing that has to be applied regularly. The third benefit of self-control is it prepares us for greater spiritual responsibilities and privileges here, here and now. Titus, Paul writes to Titus in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. If you're wondering why you got left behind, this is it. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone, and here's the list, is above reproach, is the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So he says, if you want greater responsibilities in the body of Christ, maybe as an elder, giving oversight to the ministries of Trinity Church. And, and Paul says it's a good thing if a man desires that. 
or you want to help out as an adult volunteer at HSM or MSM, or, or you want to be on the worship team or involved in men and women's leadership, or maybe it's getting involved with young adults or kids ministry or light and power, whatever that leadership role might be as a lay minister, as a volunteer, God says you have to be self-controlled. It's that non-negotiable. It's that important. So it's clear self-control has great value. I think the remaining question in my mind is how do I become self-controlled? Would any of you agree that's a question still in your mind? I understand what it is now. How do I do it? One author put it this way. We need to find our source of self-control outside of ourselves. Isn't that interesting? If you want to be more self-controlled, if you want to stop feeding the beast within, who's going to be able to do that, you or someone else? Well, we are fleshly in our nature. So how am I going to control that beast from within when that beast is me? When I want those things as a fallen creature, made in God's image, but broken. How do I do that? This author says it's got to be outside of yourself. In fact, Ed Welch, he's written a really great book called Self-Control, The Battle Over One More. Listen to what he says. True self-control is a gift from above, produced in and through us by the Holy Spirit. Until we own that it is received from outside ourselves rather than whipped up from within. The effort to give control, we, the effort we give to control our own selves will rebound to the praise rather than God's. We are promised the gift of self-control, yet we must also take it by force. That's an interesting counterbalance. For we also need to know that self-control is not a gift we receive passively, but actively. We're not the source, but we are ultimately involved. We open the gift and we live it. Receiving the grace of self-control means taking it all the way in and then out of the actual exercise of the grace. As the Hebrews were promised the land but had to take it by force, one town at a time, so we are promised the gift of self-control, yet we also must take it by force. You may be able to trick yourself into some semblance of true control, like Ryan, for two and a half minutes. You may be able to drum up the willpower to just say no, but you alone get the glory for that, which will not prove satisfying enough for the Christian. We want Jesus to get glory. We want to control ourselves in the power he supplies. We learn to say no, but we don't just say no. And here's the key. Notice this. We admit the inadequacy and emptiness of doing it on our own. Think about that for just a minute. Focus your thoughts on that for just a moment. We admit the inadequacy, the emptiness of doing it on our own. We pray for Jesus' help. We secure accountability. We craft specific strategies. We trust God's promises to supply the power for every good work and then act in faith that he will do it in and through us. And then we thank him for every spirit-supplied strain and success and step forward in self-control. So here's our final point this morning. Self-control is only truly experienced when the Holy Spirit is in control. That's the key. If you want to be self-controlled, it is the Holy Spirit who must do it through you. Now we know this 
Turn to Galatians 5. Uh, you can stop being in Peter. Just take your Bibles. Turn to Galatians 5, 16. And let me read this for you, and we'll wrap up with this this morning. I have one last illustration for you as well uh, to apply it. But Paul writes in Galatians about the, the work of the Holy Spirit, and he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. And if you do, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's powerful. This is an ironclad promise for, from God. It is yours and mine, if we want it, to not gratify the beast within, if we will walk by the Holy Spirit. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, so that they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Have you ever felt that battle? Paul writes about it in Romans 7. The things I want to do, I can't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Wretched man that I am. Verse 18, but, and I always love it when there are buts in the Bible, right? And noses. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You're not under all these rules that you have to follow to exert self-control to follow them. Now the works of the flesh are evident. It gives us this huge list again of the world around us and the works of the flesh within. And he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If this is the pattern of your life, you're in trouble. You have got to change. And that's what 2 Peter 1 is all about. Again, we have another but in the Bible, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit, this is what he produces in us, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law, no rule saying we shouldn't engage in these things. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So, folks, what is the key to gaining the Holy Spirit's gifts, and specifically self-control? That's what we're focusing on this morning. What is the most important thing we can do to acquire self-control and all these other desirable life qualities? It's very simple. There are two steps. They're in verses 24 and 25. Look back there. Two things. Paul writes and he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified past tense, aorist, one-time event, the flesh. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's step number one. Folks, do you realize that crucifixion was a one-time event designed to kill an evil person? They did not kill him almost to the point of death, pull him off the cross and say, all right, go and live for a while again. Oh, you're going back on the cross. You're an evil person. And just before he would die, pull him back off the cross. Oh, you can go live a little again. Wait, you're evil. We're putting you back on the cross. That is the Christian experience for many people. They have not made a one-time decision to allow the wretchedness of their past be the past. And so time and again, they keep coming back to crucifying the flesh, crucifying the flesh with its inner desires and passions because there is not this decision that says no to the old evil passions and way of life. Now, it's interesting that is in connection to belonging to Christ Jesus. He says, if you are belonging to him, and notice it's Christ Jesus, the Lord before the man. If you belong to him, you have done this. Past tense, you've crucified the flesh 
with its passions and desires. So the challenge to us today is, have you done that? Have you gotten so sick and tired of your old past ways, the habits, the falls, the pain of it all, the wretchedness? Have you gotten so tired of it you just said, oh, Jesus, please take it all. I'm tired of it. This is what we're talking about. It's a one-time decision that leads into belonging to Jesus Christ and having those passions and desires dead to us. Now, notice his second step. If you live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. If you're being led by the Spirit, keep in step with Him. Simply three things when you walk with the Spirit. Keep in mind, it's knowing the Spirit's pace, it is keeping up with His pace, and it's hearing His voice from God's Word while keeping that pace. Jesus said in John 16, here's, what, here's the pace of the Holy Spirit. He convicts the world of sin. Are you dealing with sin in your life as you walk with the Spirit? Righteousness. Are you walking in the righteousness of Christ as you walk with the Spirit? Judgment. Are you aware that Satan has been judged in the world? You have nothing to fear from him if you are on God's side. And the Spirit of truth gives us truth when he comes. He guides us into all truth. Those are the, that's the pace of the Holy Spirit. Let me show you what I mean. Blake, can you help me out here? Blake's one of my favorite helpers because he's always on the front row. So... How tall are you, Blake? 6'4". Six, 6'4". Four. Six, this is going to be interesting. Okay. When I went to college, I had a good friend named Gary from uh, the farmland of Indiana. So his family had thousands of acres, right? Every morning when he would get up in high school, he would walk those acres, do his chores, and then head off to high school. When I met him at college, he had a pace that was incredible. So I'm going to imitate it. I want you to keep up with me, and we'll keep talking. So when Gary and I would walk to class... Blake, where are you? Come on, man. That was Gary's pace. And I remember walking with him. We'll go a little bit slower this time. And I was running to keep up, you know, as we're going to class. Because he had this big, long pace. And if I wanted to talk to Gary, what I had to do was match his pace. So I'm going to ask you to do that with me. It's going to feel really weird. It kind of throws the hips out of joint. All right, but here we go. So there, now we're walking together, and we can talk together, right? Good job, Blake. This is great. Hey, here's an in-and-out card. Have fun with the fries. Oh, wow. Thank, Thank you. you, man. Appreciate it. You bet. How's your pace with the Holy Spirit? Jesus said in John 16, he's going to remind you of sin and righteousness and judgment of the evil one in the world and truth. And he says, if you are being led by the Spirit, if you take time in the morning to say, Holy Father, Lord Jesus, may your Spirit... I'm a little out of breath. That was a long stride. <laughs> oh, man. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, please lead me today. Show me where to go, who to talk to, how to handle my beast within. And you know what? He will do that. But Peter says here, You've got to stay in step with him. Let me end with this quote. In fact, we're going to invite our worship team to come on back up. It's going to lead us in closing worship with uh, 10,000 reasons. Kenneth Wiest is one of the great New Testament scholars. In his New Testament word studies, he says this, and I want to end with this as we go to communion. The Christian is a free moral agent 
not a machine, and is expected by God to exercise self-control by a free act of his will, doing this, however, in the energy which the Holy Spirit supplies to the yielded Christian. It is a happy combination and interworking of the free will of the believer and the grace of God. That's where we get self-control.